Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Jonah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pitied a plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and uh, thanks for coming out and joining us for worship this Sunday. Um, at the beginning of every year at Exilic Church, we do a DNA sermon series um, on our name, on our mission, and our vision. And it's sort of an annual review of our core values as a church. And today we are in the first of a two-parter on our mission. What's the mission of our church? And uh, for those of you who don't know, you can look to the banner to my left. It, it says it plain, plainly there. Our mission statement as a church is helping the thinker believe and the believer think. And that is to say, as much as we want non-believers to eventually come to saving faith, we also want to think long and hard about what we believe and be able to stand by it. 
uh, to be students of the doctrines we profess ourselves. Uh, But I do want to back up just one step behind our mission statement and ask the question, what really drives our mission at the church here? What really is our mission and what drives it? And the answer I want us to think about is this, that our mission is God's mission. Our mission is God's mission. In other words, what we want to see accomplished and what we work towards is already the work that God has been up to since the beginning. Uh, Tim Dearborn has a quote for us. You'll find it in the first page of your bulletin. And he talks about this very idea that our mission should really be his mission. He says, God's church falters from exhaustion because Christians erroneously think that God has given them a mission to perform in the world. Rather, the God of mission has given his church to the world. It is not that the church of God has a mission in the world, but the God of mission who has a church in the world. The church's involvement in missions, then, is its privileged participation in the actions of a triune God. And so what really is our work? Well, our work is God's work in making his church, us, so beautiful and radiant that the world would be attracted to it. Just like the Statue of David, this masterpiece sculpture of the Renaissance, in all of its radiant beauty gives praise and really kind of points to its creator, Michelangelo, so does the church in all of its radiant beauty give praise to its creator, God himself. So the more God does his mission to make us, his church, his people, beautiful and radiant in Christ, the more we can see believers thinking, and thinkers coming to belief. Now, our passage for today teaches us much about God's work, and there are three aspects of God's work that I want us to hone in on according to this passage today, and, that, and those are these. God's work is surprising. God's work is transformative or transforming, and God's work is compassionate. It's surprising, it's transforming or transformative, and it's compassionate. Let's first look at God's work as surprising. We, we see uh, at the beginning of our passage today that Jonah goes and preaches to Nineveh. And we know that there was a lot of kicking and screaming in the first two chapters of Jonah. But he eventually arrives at Nineveh and he preaches, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And upon completing his three-second sermon, uh, all of Nineveh comes to believe in God. And Nineveh begins to throw ashes on itself and dresses in sackcloth as, as kind of a, a representation of their mourning and realization of their uh, error. And they start fasting as an entire city. And word eventually even gets to the king of Nineveh who issues an executive order decree that everyone should fast and his words turn from evil and the violence that is in its hands. And we're told that God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them and did not do it. And then chapter 4 begins by saying, But this displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now the question for us this morning is, why was Jonah so angry? And the answer is, it's because God was so gracious. 
That sounds a little bit weird. Why was Jonah angry? Well, it's because God was so gracious. Uh, Jonah replies to God, you know, this is exactly why. And this is exactly what I was saying back in my home country. And why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. See, Jonah knows that God is a God of covenant faithfulness. So much so that he even cites Exodus 34 here in the description of God. Uh, Exodus 34 is that passage where God is revealing himself uh, to Israel through Moses about who he is. And this is how God uh, reveals himself to Israel. He says, the Lord, Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so again, Jonah knows that God is a God of covenant faithfulness, that he promised to Israel through his servant Moses that he'd be their God and that Israel would be his people and that he would bless them with his presence, his provisions, and a place to dwell for his people. But Jonah is recalling to God's attention here that he is gracious as if to say, hey God, this is what you said you would do for us, your chosen people. You're scoring for the other team here. You're blessing the enemy. See, that's why I fled to Tarshish, because I knew that you would be gracious. But, you know, this is the surprising work of God. Do you know that God is in the business of saving not friends, but foes? And this is shocking, but this is the Christian gospel, the Christian message. There's a story I know about a preacher who's preaching to his congregation on, on one Sunday service, and he's preaching on the sacrificial love of Christ. But all of a sudden, there is this old war veteran in the back who just stands up in the middle of the sermon and shouts to the front, uh, what makes Jesus better than my friend? And at this point, the whole congregation is kind of looking back at who's saying this. It's kind of shocking. It's kind of appalling. Uh, but the old war veteran continues and says, you know, when I was in war, I had a buddy of mine in my unit who jumped on an enemy grenade and saved us all from being killed that day. So what makes Jesus better than my friend? And the pastor paused for a second. But with a heart of compassion and a simple smile, he said, my friend, would, Jesus have, would your friend have done this? the enemy. You know, Jonah would rather die than to see his enemies saved. But you know that Jesus died so that his enemies could be saved. Uh, the Bible tells us that at one point all of us were enemies of the cross. Yet while we were still enemies, God died for us. That's Romans 5.10. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And so the application could be this. If we, if we believers are thinking this morning, and let's do that together, uh, we'll realize that we, though we are a rescue people, still kind of act and live our lives like we're still the enemy of God. Uh, we disobey. Uh, we are definitely still a work in progress. And so we have to be able to say in humility that there is a common place of disobedience between us 
and non-believers. I mean, when you look at our lives sometimes compared to the life of a non-believer, you almost couldn't tell the difference because there is this commonplace of disobedience. That is to say, we're not any morally better than non-believers. I mean, just the book of Jonah proves the point that a prophet of God refusing, uh, refused to obey. Or take this, take this example. What's the difference between a Christian lie and a secular lie? Well, of course, the answer is nothing. Uh, a lie is a lie is a lie, whether from the lips of a pastor or an atheist, right? See, Jonah forgot, like we forget, that we were all once enemies of God, but we're saved only by the forgiving, rescuing, gracious love of our God. And it's when we realize this that we can approach sharing about our faith with coworkers, for instance, not from a place of moral superiority, but from a place of the same moral depravity. You know, New York City might have the densest population of non-believers and skeptics really anywhere in the world. But you know, that's why Exilic exists here. Uh, late 2017, I met Aaron with Jean for the very first time, and we uh, were talking about New York City and how Exilic got its name and how it got to, to, to come into existence here in the city, and asked Aaron, why did you plant a city here in New York City? And among other things, he said, uh, regarding church planting, that really the only justification that a church plant has for its, its, for its existence is to intentionally work towards seeing the unchurched churched into every neighborhood of New York City as much as we could possibly help. And I got thinking about that. And, and really, when I heard that, it changed my life. And this past week, I was thinking about some more. And I thought, now the only way that we're going to intentionally work towards seeing unchurched people churched is if we start by saying that we know that we're m not morally flawless and to be honest about it, uh, to be humble and to let our non-believing friends see us doing this, to know that we're recipients of a great grace while we were once enemies of God ourselves. Because you see, intrinsic to Exilic's mission statement is the admission that we need to do some thinking ourselves as believers about what and why we believe what we believe. And what we believe is this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's work. It's surprising. Now, at the same time that God's work is surprising, God's work is transforming. You know, the state of Jonah's heart is very similar to ours sometimes. It's hard and stubborn, and sometimes God needs to teach us by putting us through the ringer, uh, through difficult circumstances, and this is the way he can transform us. Uh, at the start of chapter 4 in our passage today, Jonah, after seeing this mass revival in Nineveh, goes out to the east of the city. He sets up a booth or kind of like a hut for himself to see what's going to happen to the city of Nineveh now. And we're told that God appointed a plant and uh, to give him shade and to save him from his discomfort. And we know the rest of the story. In uh, after God does this, Jonah becomes exceedingly glad. But in the morning, God appoints a worm, this worm, 
to attack the plant, and the plant, as a result, withers, and Jonah becomes exceedingly upset about this, to the point where it would be better for me to die than to live, he says. Now, what's the point of all of this? What's the point of this story? Well, the point of the story and the point of God appointing the plant and appointing the worm is so that he could save him from his discomfort. Now, what's striking is that the word discomfort is the same word as evil. It's the same word. It means the same thing. It can either mean discomfort or evil. And so we can read this back as saying something like, and God appointed the plant to give him shade to save Jonah from his own evil heart. And the rest of the story, and what's the whole point of that story? It's so that God could save him from his own evil. And this is God's work, to transform us. But how does he transform us? Well, exactly like this. You see, God doesn't simply give Jonah a Bible study lesson about who he is and what Jonah is doing wrong, saying, don't you know, Jonah? Oh, my gosh, you're, you're, you're my prophet. I, I can't believe you don't know this. You know, biblically and the- theologically, don't you know that I'm the God of all nations and that this is the promise that I gave to is- Abraham from the very beginning? Uh, what God wants to do, what God wants to do is transform his heart. But the only way to get through to Jonah is to give him a real and practical lesson from the school of hard knocks uh, through discomfort and through frustration and suffering to teach him that he's acting like the very enemy nation of God that he so hypocritically despises. You know, this is often how God likes to deal with us. He wants to do the work of transforming us But he does it by putting us through certain discomforts and frustrations and and perhaps genuine sufferings in our life. Because you know when you're put through the ring or when you're put through difficult and dark times, you know, all these things in your heart that were there that you didn't know begin to surface. Your sins, the worst of who you are, it all begins to rise to the top. Um, As well as the things you really value and the reasons you really get up in the morning. And maybe those things aren't bad things, but it becomes your everything, and it's all-consuming, and it becomes the thing that you worship. Take, for instance, um, if you hate your job. It's definitely a discomfort in your life. Uh, It could be frustrating. It could be upsetting. Um, It's a struggle to get to the office every morning, day in and day out, and you just long and live for weekends like this one, right, where we're off on Monday, but maybe you don't even have Monday off and you're just, you know, it just kind of makes you think uh, worse about your state. Uh, You're working under an incompetent supervisor who doesn't care about you especially. Uh, You feel like the people on your team are uh, just really unqualified and you're thinking, why am I on this this scrub team? Uh, You become judgmental. You become critical, right? You become ungracious to your coworkers. You become really entitled. You can become envious of others who have it better than you. And this kind of stress on your work life definitely translates to the kind of relationships that we have um, outside of our work. And, and you get the idea. Well, why does God put us through all this? Well, it's so that all that stuff could kind of rise to the top, to the surface. Because it's in the difficult times that God wants you, he wants you to experience the worst 
of yourself. But why? So that he could save you from yourself. It'll be dark. It'll be uncomfortable. It'll be frustrating. It'll be like lights have been turned off. But again, the purpose of all of this is to save you from yourself so that you can be led back to God. So when bad things happen, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, one of my favorite movies that I've seen just way too many times, it's, it's Apollo 13. And it talks about uh, that spaceship mission to the moon. Right? It was the second trip, uh, Jimmy Lovell. Right, and his story and his team to the moon, but we all know what happens in the movie. Basically, an O2 tank busts, right, and now they have to try and figure out how to get the, 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 the crew back to Earth safely. And there's a new segment while they're still up in space trying to figure out how to get them back. Um, this new segment, this interview that was pre recorded with Jimmy Lovell, and the news reporter asks him, um, So, have you been in emergency, emergency situations before? And Jimmy Lovell talks about how he was once in this combat situation, and he was uh, driving this um, aircraft carrier. And uh, he's over the Sea of Japan, and his radar is jammed, and his home beacon isn't working because someone in Japan is using the same frequency, so it's actually leading him away from home. And Jimmy Lovell turns on his map light, but when all of a sudden all the lights and his instrumentation and his displays just go out and he's freaking out. He knows that he's low on fuel and so he's thinking about ditching into the sea and he's just staring into the darkness when he sees this green trail like this green carpet laid underneath him. And he talks about how it was the, the algae, the phosphorescent stuff that gets churned up in the wake of a big carrier. And he says that that's the thing that led him home. But if his cockpit didn't short out and his displays and instrumentation zapped and gone in that instance, he wouldn't have been able to stare into the dark so that he could see. Uh, well, for us, a similar thing happens, except... Uh, the thing that God wants us to see is our own sin, the darkness of our soul, so that we could ask him to save us from it. Do you see now why God doesn't give the church, and, he, and do you see the reason why that God doesn't give exilic church a mission to do? Because you know what the mission is. God's mission is to save us. Now what's really going to help the thinker believe and the believer think is if we know that we believers are the ones who really need that saving and transformation. It's the only way evangelism can happen. If we have a Savior, we really know we need who we can share about. Uh, Randy Newman, there's a quote for you in the bulletin, and he talks about this very idea and evangelism. He says, if we ever relied on the power of our reasoning skills or the strength of our apologetic arguments, we succumbed to an arrogance that trusted in ourselves rather than God. Somewhere along the way, we forgot that people are dead in their trespasses and sins. We thought they were just confused or misinformed or ignorant. We slipped into thinking people needed answers more than a savior. And this quote couldn't be more true than for us as believers that we need a Savior. 
And so what does it mean then to participate in God's mission? Because that's definitely what we're called to do as a church. But what does that mean? It means that we are transformed ourselves. If you've ever, if you've been hopping or shopping churches for the better part of your life in the city, and this year, for whatever reason, you decided to make Exilic or another church that faithfully strives to preach the gospel a home church, do you know that missions is happening? You know, if you're listening to the preaching of God's word, maybe even now, and you trust and you're able to grab a hold of some nugget of truth from God and you say, that, that's true in Christ. I, I believe that. Do you know that missions is happening? Do you know that if you participate in the food pantry that we started this past year in our partnership with uh, the House of Recovery in Brooklyn, and you realize in a new way that it's better to give than to receive, and you're being changed by this, and you're being blessed more because of this, do you know that missions is here? Uh, If you feel the warmth of fellowship in our CGs, in our biweekly CGs, in a way that you've never had before, do you know that missions just dropped? Missions is happening because mission is the work that God does to save us, to transform us. This is God's work. It's transformative for us. Finally, God's work is compassionate. God's work is compassionate. You know, the book of Jonah ends with God's words, and thank Thank God. Uh, It's a fitting finale to the letter given Jonah's foolish and stubborn tongue all along. Uh, Jonah comes to his life's end and asks that he die because of his discomfort. And remember, discomfort can also mean evil. So if he's saying that it's better for him to die than to live because of his own evil, well, actually, for the very first time, Jonah is thinking clearly about what he deserves. But God shows compassion to him by teaching him and showing him what compassion is all about. God says to Jonah, essentially, Jonah, you are so emotional and so upset over this plant, but do you know that your heart is not moved an inch for all those people in Nineveh, this great city of 120,000 people, who don't know right from wrong. But Jonah, don't you remember that I saved you by grace? From the belly of the whale, I delivered you, and here you are. Here you are, more upset and angry over a plant and over a shade that you don't have over the 120,000 people who don't know they're left from right. You see, God is showing Jonah what compassion really looks like. Because when God looks at the city of Nineveh and all those people who don't know they're left from their right, he has real concern and real compassion for them. And I can't help but think that when God looks at the city of New York City, he feels a deep compassion. And, and, and why would that be? Well, it's because across the five boroughs of New York City, there, there are 8.55 million reasons for God's compassion. There are that many people living in New York City, and all of them, not 
a single one of them is not created in the image of God. Uh, you know that about 300 years ago, less than 3% of the entire human population lived in cities. But now, more than 50% of the entire human population live in cities. And that number is gro- growing. You know, uh, cities biblically are really important to God, and he has a lot of compassion for them. Because, you know, the new heavens and the new earth will be an urban center of citizens belonging to the kingdom of God. That's right. Heaven is not somewhere we go after we die, but heaven is going to be the restored creation. And to this creation is going to come this new Jerusalem, this new city, and all of us are going to dwell in the city as new urbanites. Strategically, then, cities need churches and new church planting endeavors because the hope of gospel renewal will one day be fulfilled in and as one new glorious city. You know, many of us come into the city, came into the city to get something from the city, whether it be education or a job or money or culture. But what if we had the eyes of compassion like God did? And God does still. And instead of only getting what's ours from the city, we stuck around and gave to the city. And by the city, I mean, of course, the people. You know, this past week in my preparations for sermon, I actually got a little bit distracted and started searching for apartments on Street Easy. And it's because my lease is coming to an end um, uh, at the middle of this year. And I was looking for apartments, and I was so distracted because... I found that not actually too far from here that I could double the square footage of my apartment uh, for actually less the rent that I'm paying. And so I, I was going crazy on Street Easy and other apps like Street Easy, like Naked Apartment and, and so forth, just looking for apartments. And then I got back to my sermon prep, and I got to this section on God's compassion You know, I was worried about square footage, the things that I could get to better my life, right? To provide more square footage for my fishing gear and for Evelyn's growing number and inventory of toys. But I realized that I had forgotten, really, why my family and I moved into the the city and into Manhattan in the first place. You know, we came into the city this past year to see believers and non-believers be reached with the gospel of Christ and to be a part of what God is doing here. You know, I was more concerned about increasing my square footage in my apartment than I was about the 8.55 million people and the reasons why God has so much compassion for the city. You know, God is so much more compassionate than we could ever be. And so, what's going to help us then? What's going to be the source of power for us to be like him in his compassion? And I want to end with this. At, At the end of Jonah's physical and psychological limits, all he wanted to do was die. Jonah wanted to die because his plans for comfort fell apart. 
He didn't care for himself nor for people. But at the end of the book, we don't know actually what happened to Jonah. Jonah was in great suffering, and there are no words actually to say that Jonah's request to die was granted. But many years later, someone would request to lay down his own life, and it would be granted. It's the greater Jonah, Jesus Christ, who would do this. And really, the difference between Jonah and Jesus is that while Jonah wanted to escape his own discomfort, Jesus entered into our discomfort. While Jonah requested death because his plans for comfort fell apart, Jesus, the greater Jonah, requested death, entering into discomfort so that his life would fall apart on the cross. Now, why would he do such a thing? So that our life wouldn't fall apart. Jesus died on the cross, and the cross is really the tangible and perfect expression of the surprising, transforming, and compassionate work of God. And it was all for us. You know, I don't know how long exilic will be around. But for as long as we are, let's make our mission God's mission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the surprising, transforming, compassionate work that, w- that was accomplished on the cross. Help us now in turn, by your Spirit's leading, to have compassion for a city that you love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.